Well, again, welcome. Uh, good morning. So glad that you're here uh, with us. Welcome to Christ Community. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, it's good to be together. We're, we are in the midst of this uh, ancient story. Uh, we heard a few of those words read a moment ago. We've been studying this together this summer. Um, glad you're here. Glad you get to be a part of it. Let me, let me pray for us. We believe that God uh, speaks from this, this book, uh, and we want, we want to be a people who hear his voice. And so let me pray and ask for, for God's help in this moment. Let's, let's pray. God, uh, we are here, um, at least in many ways, for many of us, because we believe that you continue to speak, that you long to meet with your people through uh, singing, through community, God, through um, your word. Uh, God, we believe that your word is living and active and that you continue, even in this story that's so bizarre and is so old, and that you continue to speak to us and to reveal who you are to us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And what's interesting, I'd already started studying this, this text, this story for this morning. And it's interesting when, especially kind of with, with my, you know, what I do and you know, studying a text, I can sometimes get so immersed in a place uh, of Scripture where I begin to kind of almost see it coming to life around me, right? It, it sort of, because I just, you know, I'm, I'm in it for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what God is, is saying and how, how to communicate that. And so sometimes you kind of begin to see it. And I don't, I don't mean like with this one that I, you know, I somehow was like Moses, right? And, and he was, you know, somehow like Pharaoh or, or anything like that. I don't, I don't mean that at all. Although, uh, if I could have unleashed like a whole bunch of frogs or, or gnats in the house simply to create a diversion, I, I would have been all over that, quite honestly. Uh, but that's, that's not what I mean at all. What, what I mean is that in this story, what we see so clearly, you can't miss this in this story, that God will do anything to be known. Anything. God will do anything to be known. And yet when I asked him to show up, I know you've been there, right? I mean, the reality is young, old, whether you're a Christian or not, you've, you've been in those moments where you've said to God, God, would you, would you just show yourself? Whether it's because you want to maybe have a little more proof that he exists, right? You're not sure if you can believe in him or not. Or maybe it's in a desperate situation when you're like, God, would you just intervene? Would you do something in this place in my life? You've prayed that probably. I've prayed that. And sometimes it just feels like nothing. And here's, here's the scary part about asking God to do that. Because we see this in the story that we're going to look at this morning as well. Because God will, he will make himself known. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a promise we have. That everyone who has ever lived, ever, anywhere, will meet this God. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your lifestyle, your background. Every one of us here in this room, God will do anything to be known, and you will meet him. But he only really does so in two ways. I mean, ultimately, yes, God will be known. But we see this in the story, and I felt this in that darkened home. There's only two ways. To the hardened, God makes himself known through judgment. But to the desperate, God makes himself known through mercy. As we look at this story, and we were kind of getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves here, because this, this frightens me when I think about this, right? If there's only these, these two ways, because I, I look in my heart or I look around the world, or, you know, I don't have to look that far. I can look at my own, my own stuff that I deal with, and I, I can't help but wonder, is, 
where, where is my heart getting just a little bit crusty? Where, where do I get more and more close to what God is doing around me or, or to what I know is right, and yet I, I, I push him out? God will make himself known, but will it be with judgment or mercy? We are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're, we're in the midst of this ancient story, right? Old, old story. And I mean, frankly, it's, it's an unbelievable, wild story, isn't it? And yet we, we believe that these events, that they actually happened in our world, in, in real life, to, to, real, to real people. And so what happens in this, this setting? If we've been talking about this summer. If you've uh, been away on vacation, or maybe, maybe this is your first Sunday here, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit. So God's people are in a place where they are, they are oppressed. They're in Egypt, and, and they've been slaves there for, for generations. Their children are being murdered, and there are weights put on them, burdens that are absolutely innumerable. I mean, oppression and hardship that we, we can't even begin to comprehend. But God sees them. He hears them. He remembers them, and God knows Enter Moses. Here's Moses. Moses, he's a Hebrew, but he was, he was raised and grew up in the palaces of, of Pharaoh. And when Moses comes onto the scene in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, you kind of like, you, you expect something awesome to happen, right? It's the way the story is told, and yet his very first story as an adult becomes a murderer. He kills one of the Egyptians. He, he's just like Egypt, right? Taking matter and matters into his own hands, using power, right? He doesn't want to do it God's way. He wants to do it his way, and he's exiled, kicked out of Egypt. He's gone. He's a, he's a shepherd in the desert for 40 years. He's finished, right? There's no hope for this guy. This is all in chapter two of Exodus, right? Immediately, right out of the gate, you think, man, this is, he's a failure. Until God comes down, like a burning bush, right? That whole scene happens. They have this conversation, and, and God says to Moses, even to Moses, that he's going to use Moses in his plan to deliver his people. And, and very reluctantly, Moses agrees. But he agrees not because Moses is some kind of hero, right? And we've seen that already, and we'll see that in the, the chapters ahead. Moses is no hero, and yet he believes, Moses believes that he's met the real hero of this story, God himself, the God whose name is Yahweh. That's how Mo, Moses learns about it. That's how God reveals himself to Moses. It's Yahweh, the great I am. He is coming, and he will do anything to be known. Now, we've, we've got a ton of text to work through this morning. Um, if you have your Bible and want to follow along, I encourage you to do so, but it's going to be a sprint, so good luck. We've got uh, seven chapters, actually, because uh, this is one story, right? The, the plagues and the Passover, it's one unit, and yet it goes for six chap- seven chapters, and we're going to do our best to kind of summarize as we go. But we're going to begin in chapter six. Those are the words that we just heard read a moment ago. Because that, it's the tail end of the burning bush scene. It's where God tells Moses everything that's about to happen. So none of this is like going to surprise Moses. It's certainly not going to surprise God. But, but Moses is, is told, and, and in those verses, three times, right? In those, those eight verses we heard read, God reminds Moses who he is. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Uh, keep in mind, we said this last week, that when you see in your Bibles, Lord in all caps, it, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh kind of the proper name for God. It just means I am. God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am the God who always was, always is, and always will be. My name is I am. I, I exist. And in verse 7 there in chapter 6, God tells Moses why he's about to do everything he's about to do. All of it. 
verse, verse seven. God says to Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And about 12 times between here and chapter 14, God tells his people, or he tells the Egyptians, or he tells them both, that everything he's about to do, all these plagues, all these miracles, the, the, the rescue, all of it, really has just one purpose. Over and over, God says, it's so that you will know, you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am God. Well, let, me, let me even just read those for you. I read, I read chapter 6, verse 7 already. Chapter 7, verse 5. God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. 7.16, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water in the Nile. 8.10, so that you may know that there is no, no one like the Lord our God. 8.22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 9.14, I will send all of my plagues on you, Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 9.16, why is Pharaoh king? For this purpose, God says, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 9.29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10.2, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, that you may know that I am the Lord. 11.7, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 14.4, I will get glory over Pharaoh, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And 14.18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So why is God doing any of this? I mean, any guesses, Right? Over and over and over again, right? God said it's because I want you to know because it's because God will do anything to make himself known. Anything. Yeah, but why does he want to be known so bad? I mean, is he just some sort of, you know, melodramatic person who's like self-absorbed, self-obsessed, you know, everybody look at me, I'm awesome. Is that, is that who God is? I don't think so. In fact, if we go back a little bit further in the story, I think we begin to understand why God is so passionate that he be known. Because back in the story of the garden, right, that's a story of how and why we were created. The early chapters of the Bible make it clear that God made us for himself, to know him and to be known by him, to love him and be loved by him. That's why we exist. If you want to know what your purpose is as a human being, why God put you on this earth, ultimately that's it for every one of us to know him and be known by him. It's, it's why we exist. But that story in Genesis also says that we rebelled against this God. We rejected our purpose. We hide from him and we close our eyes to his presence. And so of course we feel like he's distant. Sin has created an infinite rift between us. A gap that we cannot cross on our own no matter how good you think you happen to be. And honestly, deep down, I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, we kind of prefer to keep God at a distance, don't we? At least at arm's length, right? Don't get, don't get too close. And yet, if we were made for him and we rejected him and yet we were made for him, that means that God knows that you and I, we will be restless until we do know him. That nothing... Nothing is going to quite satisfy us until we do. And so we run to different things, right? Things that we, we beg to give our lives meaning and satisfaction. We go after them, we grab onto them, and yet they're just never quite enough. It's because we were made for more. We were made to know him, and we will be restless until we do. And so when God says, 
I will do anything to make myself known. Friends, that is good news. That that is God saying to his people, I know what you need and what you need more than anything, I will give it to you. The thing that you're looking for, the thing that you just... You will not be satisfied until you, until you find it. I will, I will give you myself. Because whether you realize it or not, whether, whether you want me or not, God says, that is what you need, and I will, I will give myself to you. And so before we move on, I mean, the first thing that we've got to ask ourselves to wrestle with, I think I've been asking myself this past week is, I mean, do I even really want to know him? Right? If God will do anything to be known, if that's the purpose, the very reason for which I exist, do I even want to? And, and don't just say, yeah, of course I do, right? Because that's we, it's so easy to sort of give a pat answer in this moment. But do you actually want to know him? Not, not who you think he is or who you want him to be, but who he actually is. Not, not the God that, that we imagine, right? Who, you know, is a genie living in a bottle or who just is there to kind of fix our problems or maybe just like pat us on the back, tell us we're doing a good job, who likes all the same people you like and hates all the same people you hate, right? And we do that, don't we? We make God into our own image. We, we create for him ourselves and think, well, that's, that's him. But the reality is, if our God is that much like us, there's a good chance we've invented him, isn't it? God has to be able to challenge us. It's the only way we can know that we have the real God, if he can challenge us, right, and confront us and to, to call us out of our messes. So not the God that we imagine, but the God, the God who is, who reveals himself to us through his word, through this book. Do you want what he has for you? Do you want to know him? And a lot is riding on how we answer that question. Because the next thing that we see as this story really develops is that to the hardened, right, to those who, when they're honest with themselves, right, who, who really want nothing to do with God, or maybe they would never say that, right, but the, for those who live their lives as if God has, has nothing to say, no, nothing to do, to those who are hardened, God will make himself known because God will do anything to be known, but he will do so through judgment. We can't miss that with the Egyptians, They'll know him, just as the Egyptians knew him, but it's, it's not going to be pretty. And so imagine the scene. Moses and his brother Aaron face off with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in that world. And maybe you've heard this story a million times. Maybe this story's brand new to you, but for, for a moment, just kind of enter into that place. Imagine what that's like. There they are in front of the most powerful man in, in the world. And Moses, I mean, at this point, Moses is 80 years old, okay? This is, this is his plan for retirement, okay? It's, it's to go and, and confront Pharaoh. And he spent the last 40 years in the wilderness as a desert. Picture him old and gray, wrinkled, maybe a little bit, you know, hunched over. He's probably wearing the same shepherding clothes that he's been wearing for the last 40 years, and he stands before royalty, before raw power. And he says to Pharaoh, Yahweh tells you, let my people go. Talk about guts, right? And Pharaoh in that moment, I mean, you know, can't hardly blame the guy at this point at least. I mean, Pharaoh just kind of laughs. He's like, are you, are you kidding me? Who, who do you think you are, Moses, right? Uh, and Yahweh, never heard of him, right? 
And I'm the most important person like in the entire world, right? And if I haven't heard of this God, then he's nobody and he's nothing. And Pharaoh just brushes it off. He laughs, he scoffs in this moment. And so Aaron takes his staff, right? His, you know, sort of a shepherd's stick kind of thing. And he, he throws it down onto the ground and it becomes a snake. Which is pretty cool, right? So now there's a snake in the room, which, I don't know, it's just kind of, Makes it a little more interesting, I suppose, all of a sudden. Uh, and the, the magicians of Pharaoh, the Egyptian you know, sorcerers, they're there, and they, they also throw down a staff and, and make a snake. It's kind of interesting. In fact, they're able to mimic a handful of these crazy miracles. Um, by the way, never be surprised at spiritual imposters, right? That kind of thing happens. It weirds us out, maybe, but it, it does happen. So is it just some elaborate party trick that's going on here? I don't think so. Uh, the snake in Egyptian culture was a symbol of royalty. In fact, uh, you can find all kinds of pictures or artifacts where uh, the snake is actually part of the crown. It's part of the symbol of distinction of the power of the Egyptian people. In fact, the, the snake was a, a, an Egyptian god, uh, the god of, of chaos. It's the god of evil. And so now in this room, you've got two snakes. And Yahweh's snake devours Pharaoh's snake, just swallows it whole. That's a warning for Pharaoh. In fact, many scholars would say that this, this whole scene as it unfolds, these 10 plagues, that each one of them is somehow a direct attack on one of Pharaoh's gods. That this, this isn't some showdown simply between Moses and Pharaoh, an ultimate cage fight, right? This is Yahweh versus the whole host of pagan deities against all that is evil there within Egypt. In fact, God himself says in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And it could have ended there. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty serious warning, right, there in that moment. But Pharaoh, he, he is unimpressed. And his heart grows hard. And the Nile turns to blood. It's plague number one. I mean, this is their livelihood, right? This river. It's everything for them. It's why they're so powerful. And so there goes their water, their fish, all of it, panic flows downstream from them. And yet I imagine, I mean, this isn't, this isn't here. This is just my imagination working. I think you can picture it with me. I, I imagine an old Hebrew woman there at the banks of the river, watching it turn blood red. And, and she's old, right? She's been around. And so she, she remembers her brothers thrown into that river and murdered when they were babies. She remembers her sons tossed in there and killed. And as the river fills with their blood, she knows, my God has not forgotten. He remembers them. He remembers us. It could have ended right there. Pharaoh is unimpressed and his heart grows hard. Next come the frogs. 
that's the most comical one to me. I don't know if God just has a, a wild sense of humor or what, but frogs everywhere in your bed, frogs. Uh, the frog was, a, was an Egyptian deity as well. Uh, it was a symbol of fertility, right, of life, of flourishing, both for their crops as well as uh, for their families. And it's as if Yahweh says, nope. And with this one, I mean, again, right, frogs everywhere. Pharaoh begins to waver just a tiny bit. Even think for a moment, maybe he's catching on here and he's going to back out of this thing. And yet, once again, his heart grows hard and he's unimpressed. Next are the gnats. Seems like a small thing, I guess, in many ways, doesn't it? But have you ever walked through a cloud of gnats, right? Like with your mouth open. Um, it's a little overwhelming. And, and, you know, picture, like, as far as the eye can see, in every direction, gnats are everywhere. And it's even with this one where, where the magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt, they're like, we can't, this dude, we're out. Uh, Pharaoh, you're, you're on your own. I mean, they actually say to him, this is amazing, right? They actually say to Pharaoh, let me find 819. They say, this is the finger of God. And yet, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord God had said. Could have ended there. But his heart grows hard. And then, then there are flies. Then the death of livestock. Then their bodies are covered with boils. Hail, like you wouldn't believe. Locusts, right? To eat anything that was left from all the destruction that had already gone through. Uh, darkness, uh, which many would say is an attack on, on Ra, right? One of the, the primary gods in Egyptian culture. Here's, a, here's an image of it. You can see the serpent there as well, right? So Ra and, and the, I can't remember his name, the, the, the serpent god, the god of, of chaos. They're also imaged there. Darkness. Everywhere. Except, except for the Israelites, which is kind of interesting. Not sure how that worked out. But all across the entire land of Egypt, it's dark. I mean, this is the apocalypse, people. This is end-of-the-world kind of stuff. The creation itself is unraveling all around Egypt for them. And after each plague, it could have been the last. It's clear. In fact, there are even a few spots in which it really looked like Pharaoh was going to repent, right? Where he starts to, or he starts to make promises. I mean, one place in particular, he actually says this to Moses, this time I have sinned. The Lord Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. But you know, wanting to make your life better isn't the same thing as wanting God. In fact, you can even say all the right things, the right words, right? And still deep down want absolutely nothing to do with him. And after every plague, his heart grows harder. And sometimes it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart for him, allowing him to go deeper and deeper into his own shame. Because God is going to show him, show the Egyptians, and show Israel, and show the surrounding nations around them that he is the Lord. Now, if you're like me a little bit here, you might be beginning to feel a little uncomfortable with all this judgment, right? And how could God do this, right? Does anybody, right, you feel that. And how could God do this to these, these people? And I mean, especially if you know the rest of the story, right? He's about, 10th plague is, he's gonna kill their firstborn sons all across Egypt. And yes, the, the, the Egyptians did kill all of those Hebrew sons. And yet, how could God possibly do this? 
But I wrestle with those questions. I study, I study this, I think, how, I mean, what's going on there? And yet, you've got to look at it from Israel's perspective. We, we ask those questions from here, right? When we're safe and secure, living our, our comfortable lives in comfortable ways, and yet ask Israel if God should judge them. I mean, we, we look at the story and we think, how could, God, how could God do this? But they look at it and they think, how could God not? Generations of being destroyed, raped, oppressed, enslaved, murdered. And God has given the Egyptians chance after chance after chance. You think about it. Pharaoh saw more of God than you and I could even imagine. More of his power, more of his... I mean, we can't even like dream up what this was like for Pharaoh. And yet at the end of the story... He's the slave, isn't he? A slave to his own hardened heart. And, and for some, for some of us, it, it really doesn't matter how much evidence you're given. Right? It, some of you, I mean, if you're honest, you don't believe because your heart is just too hard to believe. You don't believe because you don't, you don't want any of this to be true. The reality is, if God is the last thing you want, then he's the last thing you're going to get. Yes, God will make himself known. But to the hardened, it comes through judgment. And so I've had to ask myself, how hard is my heart? I've wondered that with this story. Where is the crust beginning to form? I mean, we can argue about the, the judgment of God so we're blue in the face, right? We can make sort of this theoretical thing of whether or not we can believe in a God who would actually judge people. But the question is, am I on the receiving end of this judgment? That's, that's the urgent one, isn't it? Is my heart hard? I mean, I know maybe we're not as bad as Pharaoh. I don't think we are. And yet where are the places in my life like Pharaoh that I know it's right? Maybe I even see God working or see his presence and yet... I continue to turn my back on him over and over again. I mean, sin is sort of like a, an ocean current in, in a lot of ways, right? And, and, you know, the water may feel great, and you can say to yourself, That's, it's going to be fine, and feel the sun. And sin is pleasurable for a while, right? That's why we run after, because it does satisfy some of those longings, whatever, whatever those things happen to be that we run after. And yet, slowly, subtly, unnoticeably, we're drifting, and we're drifting, and we're drifting. How far will you have drifted when you notice And will it be too late to go back to shore? Where are those blind spots? Things you just don't see anymore in your life. Where, I mean, this for me, this is the the one I'm probably wrestling with the most. Where have I just grown too comfortable with my own sins? I don't even call them sin anymore. I don't even just notice, right? Things that used to bother me, just don't bother me anymore. And I let myself off the hook. Where are we sleeping in our faith? I mean, you know, for example, you, you shouldn't look at that on the internet, but, you know, God will forgive you. It's going to be okay. Or, you know, you, you shouldn't sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, but, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Or, you know, you shouldn't treat people like that. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be so greedy or self-absorbed or manipulative or, or you know, whatever it is for you or for me. But after a while, you just don't care as much. And it gets a little bit harder and you're no longer impressed with God. And it gets a little bit harder. And I see that in so many places in my life. At least the potential, so many places. 
And we can end up like Pharaoh, isolated and alone, possessing everything and nothing all at the same time. God gave Pharaoh so many chances. How many will he give us? But Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they're not the only characters in this story. Because meanwhile, uh, the Hebrews are watching all of this, right? They're, they're seeing it all uh, unfold around them. They're seeing creation coming undone, right? This is, this is apocalyptic for them. And yet in desperation, they cry out to this same God. And to the desperate, God makes himself known through mercy. Because there is a 10th plague coming. It's ugly. It's the big one, isn't it? It's the death of the firstborn son. But this, this one is unique in that it's, it's coming for all of them. Because everybody deserves God, God's judgment. We all deserve death for the ways that we've rejected him. And so both Egypt and Israel alike, they are under this curse of sin and brokenness. And they've seen everything. They've witnessed all the same miracles. And to the hardened, they, they withdraw, right? They pull back, but to the desperate, they cry out. And for those who are desperate enough, humbled, who are tenderhearted, who are willing to try it, God offers a way out. Because out of love and mercy in the midst of this, as God tells them what this 10th plague is going to be, this death of every firstborn son, in the midst of all that, God hatches a plan. He basically says to his people, this is in, in chapter uh, 12 there, um, basically, basically says to them, make a feast. Do, do this thing, okay? Make a feast and let the main course of this feast be lamb. And when you eat this feast, you eat it with your shoes on and your bags packed and your staff in your hand and you eat it in a hurry because you are on your way out. I am going to deliver you. I am setting you free. It's going to happen now. So eat this meal like that. And if you believe it, if you have the faith to believe that I, your God, am going to do this and smear some of its blood on the doorpost above your house. And when I come to judge, when I come to bring judgment on all who deserve judgment, which again is all of us, if I see the blood on the door as evidence of your faith, then I will pass over your house and death itself will pass over your house and I, I will set you free. And you will go and you will be my people and you will know, you will know that I and the Lord. And so the Hebrews do that. God holds, upholds his end of the deal. And he makes a covenant with them to be their God as they leave this terrible place. And I realize we kind of puzzle over the whole blood thing, right? Especially if you, you know, go a little further in the Old Testament and sacrificing animals and what does all that mean? I, I get that. It begins to come just a little bit more into focus. What, what God was doing there, that Passover night, uh, when we get to the Gospels, we get to the New Testament, and John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, he cries out about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb, John says, who takes away the sins of the world. God will be known. And I deserve judgment just like Pharaoh. We deserve it just like Egypt. But it doesn't have to be this way. God longs to show us mercy because it, I mean, it wasn't merely lamb's blood on that door, right? Now, what good would that do, right? It's, it's, it's nothing. It's just animal blood. And yet, it's, it's a symbol of something so much more that, that God himself, that it would be his blood above the door. It would be his blood that would set us free from our slavery to death and to sin. It was a promise that God would be the one, that where death is deserved, he would die. 
and that those who recognize their needs would be, need would be saved. And so I've been asking myself, am I desperate? This is an act of desperation, isn't it? Blood on a doorpost, a meal in a hurry, packed your bags before Egypt's given you the green light to go. I mean, this is a meal of desperation. The reality is coming to Jesus is no less desperate. Because we can't, we can't come to Jesus simply, simply to give us a few tweaks, right? We don't come to him simply to fix our problems as, as much as we'd love for him to do that, and sometimes he does, but we don't come to him merely because we want him to sand off the rough edges of our life. We come, when we come to Jesus, we come as starving people begging for food. We come as dead women and men asking for life. We, we come as those who are enslaved, longing for freedom, are you desperate? Let me just offer one simple next step from this morning. The thing that I keep coming back to as I've looked at this story, I mean, if God will do anything to be known by you, okay? Let's finish that thought, right? God will do anything to be known by you. By you. If that's true, then get to know him. And what are you, what are you doing to, to, to get to know this God who longs to reveal himself to us? Whether, whether you're a Christian or not, right? Young or old, no matter who you are, are you pursuing him in faith and humility and obedience, right? Are you coming to him on his terms? Or is your heart slowly growing harder and harder and harder? I mean, those are really the only options that he gives us. We're either, either moving towards him or away from him. That's, that's it. And ultimately, the only way to get to know this God is through his son. The ultimate picture of God's nearness, of his longing to be known, of, of his fullness. The, the fullness of God with skin on, right? Not, blood not just on a door, but on a cross. I mean, that's how much God wants to be known that he came here and revealed himself in Jesus. One, one scholar writes, Jesus can heal the nations because he is not only the judge, he has himself borne the judgment. On the cross, Jesus' own body was shattered like a china doll as he bore the fracturing power of sin. With outstretched arm, arms on the cross, Jesus receives the nation's judgment and simultaneously receives the nations in mercy. Jesus grabs hold of sin's destructive power that has divided humanity, carries it with him into the grave and buries it there. And so in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can declare so loudly, clearly about Jesus. He says, therefore, because of all of this, because Jesus has done this, because Jesus has revealed God to us and made a way back to him, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will do anything to be known, even to the point of becoming human, even to the point of, of entering this world, dying to give us a way into mercy and coming back to life to give us a way out of judgment. Friends, this is why we call it good news. And this morning, we get to reenact a little bit of this story together. Because it was, it was there so long ago that Jesus was celebrating this same Passover meal, this meal of remembrance and celebration of God's deliverance there with his disciples, that final meal of his life. I mean, think about that, right? 
When Jesus celebrated that meal, it was 1,400 years after the first time and 2,000 years ago from now. And yet he breaks bread, he drinks the wine together with his disciples. You know, one of the things that I find most interesting about the way all of the gospel writers tell that story is that none of them mention the lamb. I mean, it's the most important part of the meal, right? It's the centerpiece. It's, it's what it all revolves around. And yet none of them mention the meal. I think it's because each of them knew Jesus is the lamb. He is the one. He replaces the old ways. He has come to bring ultimate forgiveness through his ultimate life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And Jesus himself said, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to come to this table, this table of repentance, of humility, of celebration. Uh, We're going to do that in just a moment. Before we get there, though, we're going to put those reflection questions back on the screen. Um, Because as I've looked into my own heart this week, I need to once again receive God's mercy. To be in that place where I say, God, yes, I I want your mercy. Soften my heart. As we're going to leave it up here, we'll have maybe, you know, a minute or so to, to reflect, to pray. Uh, Seth is going to uh, sing a song of really repentance, of confession uh, for us uh, to make these words our own. Um, and then he'll give some more instructions and we can, we can move to the table and to singing in a little bit. Let's pray quietly together now.